Welcome to With Maze and Mal, a podcast where two sisters come together to talk about growing up, living life, all while managing a rare chronic illness. We have lots to say and we are finally sharing our stories. We want to acknowledge that we know everyone's experience will look different and everyone's story is valid, so don't think your journey has to look just like ours. We are not medical professionals, so any recommendations we make on here are based on our own experiences and any changes you make to your care should be discussed with your providers. In this episode, we are going to talk about some of the communities that exist for people with chronic illnesses and rare diseases, and also the impact of social media that we've observed over just over the last couple of years. Um, we do want to present a content warning. There will be mention of mental health challenges, um, possible mention of suicidal ideation, and just some um, heavier topics. So um, just be prepared uh, if you continue to listen that we will be mentioning those things briefly throughout. And part of why we really wanted to do this podcast was to have the conversations that we didn't feel like anybody else was having. And that doesn't mean that everybody is going to agree with what we say in this episode or in general. Um, And it's taken us a really long time to even realize and believe that our experience and our perspective is valid, which we'll talk about more in depth in this episode. So this episode is kind of the beginning of some things that might push the envelope a little bit, but that's what we want to do with this platform. So we really appreciate everyone who does listen and who gives input and follows us along as we go there. Um, So let's get into it, Maisie. Yeah, definitely. And as we say in our disclaimer, you know, everyone's experiences are valid, um, including ours. So, you know, this is, we're speaking from our experience and um if you agree cool and if not that's cool too there's space for everyone um so as you, as you can tell by the title of this episode um we're going to talk about some of the labels and the groups that sort of classify people with uh chronic illnesses and rare diseases and one of the one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is sorry i live on a main road the cars are so loud um but one of the things that drives me crazy is the concept of the spoon theory so we're just going to dive right into it um i wrote a whole blog about this and maybe i'll include it in the description because um (laughs) i think i was probably better to articulate it than than i am now but basically the spoon theory is this metaphor um this analogy this girl was trying to explain to her friend what it was like to have a chronic illness. And so they were at a restaurant or something and she gave her like a handful of spoons. And for every like task that she completed, she took a spoon away. So basically what what it's doing is like quantifying our energy somehow. Um, And I I don't know like what the value of one spoon is in terms of actual energy. Like I couldn't find that equation anywhere. But what was most frustrating to me is that it seemed like such a simplified analogy to try to justify our experience of being tired just from existing. Like it's just another example of like how people 
are unable to like put themselves in another person's shoes or like have empathy for another person because it's something that they haven't experienced. Like, I feel like this girl had to like dumb down her experience living with a chronic illness. I think she had like, I don't remember what she had. I'm not going to go there, but um, basically she was just tired all the time and it took a lot of energy for her to do really basic tasks instead of being able to just like explain that to her friend, her friend was like, no, I need to understand it. And it just seemed very like, this isn't even about you anymore. So like, there are a couple of things with that. So like one at its core, like this analogy ties our worth back into our productivity. Like how much are we able to do during the day is equal to like how worthy we are of like having a place in society, which is such a, fucked up capitalist notion and I hate it um and the other piece is like sometimes you have to do stuff and you don't have any spoons left <laughs> like and that is you know that again goes back to like this capitalist nature of our society and that is also an issue but this just seems like such a simplified version of like like why can't somebody just understand that you're that you're tired like I, and, and I guess if it like, if it's validating to you to have this analogy to fall back on, like that's fine, but also like the people in your life should be able to respect your boundaries and understand that like, you just don't want to go out at the end of a long day or like you can't hang out because you don't feel well or something. Like it's, it's just like, if you can't just explain that to them and you have to like use this analogy to like disclose your chronic illness and be like, I don't have any spoons left. Like look at the people you're surrounding yourself with. Well, and I think too, like the comparison that kind of popped into my head, like outside of the chronic illness community is even just the, the pressure and the expectation that's put on people in the working world of like, the guilt that surrounds taking a sick day when you're, when you're sick, (laughs) Uh, you know, it's like, we're, we're made to believe that that's a sign of weakness, even though sick days are a benefit within your, you know, your benefits package at, at your employer, but still there's this pressure to always perform and, and not take time for our health and wellness when we really need it. So you know, again, it, it is that capitalist perception of if you do that, if you are tired or you do have to take that time, like it's somehow this sign of weakness. And I mean, think about the fact that in our society, in the working world, you have to earn your sick time. Like the fact that you have to like have this, like a certain degree of productivity in order to like deserve time off like that's not how your body works like your body doesn't understand the idea of like accumulating sick time it's so messed up so again like and I think this will be a theme throughout like we were talking about before we started recording like this is a workaround from a bigger systemic issue that we are failing to address by coming up with this analogy and coming up with this like mindset of like and and again like if this helps people to set boundaries that's that's great but like the actual root of it was like trying to get somebody to like understand your experience instead of just taking it 
for face value, which I don't know, ain't sit right with me. Well, and what we can take away from this and, you know, the thing about the spoon theory is that it doesn't translate, you know, it makes sense within the community of quote unquote spoonies. But I guarantee if you went to your boss and said, hey, man, like, I can't make this meeting, I'm out of spoons, they would look at you like you had two heads. Like, it just, it's not something that translates outside of that population. And what we can take away from that is the need to truly be able to advocate for what you need and how to have those conversations with different populations or audiences. Like, how do you communicate with your friends? Like, hey man, I just, you know, worked a full day or I went to the store today and that was a lot for me. So I'm not feeling up to a Zoom call this evening. Um, How do you communicate to your family? Like, you know, this baby shower, this gathering is a lot for me. Um, How do you communicate to your teachers? that you need accommodations or your bosses in a work environment. So I definitely want to talk more later about, you know, real ways to um, set those boundaries and that needing to care for your health doesn't make you less of a friend, less of a sibling, less of a parent, less of an employee, but you need to be really intentional about asking for what you want or need. And there are different strategies that can be used with all of those populations. And even if you don't necessarily know specifically what those accommodations are, if it means having additional support or flexibility, you know, the ability to start your day later, the ability to work from home, you know, kind of on an as needed basis, um, which, you know, obviously that looks different now with COVID stuff, but before, that was something that people really, really had to, to fight for was the ability to work from home, even though their you know, productivity may be better or even remain the same. Um, but instead of you know, this code language, why are we not encouraging people to have those conversations in a real meaningful way? Yeah, completely. And another theme that like, I think is going to occur throughout this episode and and might be a little bit controversial is I've seen a lot of people having the term spoonie like in their like Instagram bio and it's concerning to me when that becomes a part of your identity and I I don't want to discourage people from owning their diagnosis from owning their illness um and from owning the validity of their experiences but it it makes me sad because i feel like that is very um like focused on the limitations if that makes sense like by presenting yourself as a spoonie you're already telling the world like i i might not be able to do this like basing your identity on your lack of energy and And again, like if that's, I don't know, if that's what helps you like wake up in the morning and that is like validating to you, that's fine. Like everybody's different. Everybody has a different experience. And I don't want to like come off with this like toxic positivity because it's not that, but I just think you are setting yourself up for I don't want to say setting yourself up for failure, but like 
setting yourself up for this like lacking mindset. Like I already don't, like I have a limited amount of energy and this is all I can do. And I'm going to use this many spoons to do it. Um, and I, I just feel like it's not, you're already sort of limiting yourself just in, in presenting it that way. I don't know. I feel I've, I'm, <laughs> I'm having a hard time because I know that that's going to like rub some people the wrong way, but like, it just, it, it makes me sad. It makes me a little bit sad. I don't know. I think, I mean, this is something, I don't know, we talk about all the time is like how much you present at face value, I guess. I don't know. Like why not go into things like doing the things you want and then communicating that energy. I don't know. I I agree. I mean, this is, I have such beef with any kind of terminology or labels to begin with, which we talk about throughout these episodes because it just, it just is, you know, I don't, I don't like labels when people ask me, what do I call you? You know, my name, um, whatever terminology I need to use to get whatever I'm trying to get at the time for services or programs or eligibility. Um, and it varies so much, but to be, you know, I, I don't include my diagnosis. I don't include, you know, that component in any of my bios and it just, I don't know. I, I want to get to know a person as a person, um, before I learn about what they can't do, I guess. I've always been you know, from the mindset of assuming competence. Um, and I, and I think putting your, your deficits first, um, exacerbates the systematic problems that we'll talk more about throughout this episode. Yeah, I think that's, I think you were able to articulate what I was trying to say. So I appreciate that. (laughs) And kind of transitioning into like the use of social media in general, like, I'm kind of just going to go through my notes because I I have a really hard time articulating like why this whole thing like makes me so uncomfortable. Um, but I feel like misery loves company. Like I'm just going to say it. And I think that makes the appeal of social media that much greater in terms of like presenting about your like chronic illness or rare disease experience and I think it goes I think it's kind of a spectrum like it is super validating to find people who get it and have shared in your experiences and may even have um some insight as to like how to get through whatever it is you're going through but social media shows us the best of people and the worst of people you know um and it sort of thrives on that like shock value so like think about your dopamine receptors like if you get, you know, 150 likes on a picture of you, like, in the hospital, or it, like, increases your engagement on Instagram or something, like, that does something to your brain. It literally, like, the reward center of your brain is, like, oh, people want to see that, and I'm not saying that it is not important to normalize being sick, being in the hospital, experiencing mental health challenges. I'm not saying that at all. Like, if if that is your community and that is where you find your strength, that is valid. That is absolutely valid. What makes me sad and angry is when that is, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to like get into the next 
the next piece of like what we're going to talk about. But like, if that is what you, if that is all you picture sick people to look like, like if that is your, your brand, um, that's, that's kind of problematic. Like, I don't, it goes back to that, like that, that is your identity. Like your illness is your identity. I, I don't think that's healthy. Like I really don't. And I have a friend who, who helped me come to terms with the fact that like, you know, some people do spend the majority of their life in the hospital. Some people are bedridden. And for those people, like the internet community is really the only community that they have. And like, I, I cannot look at that person and be like, what you're doing is wrong. Like it is their platform. They can do with it, whatever they want. But it also like the internet can't be your therapist. Like if you are having, if you are dealing with like serious mental health challenges while you are simultaneously experiencing all of these other health challenges, like Instagram cannot fix that for you. And at the same time, you are pulling people into this like gravitational pull because they're seeing this engagement happening. And again, it goes back to that, like, yes, it could be very validating to be like, oh, you are going through something I went through, but then we get stuck in this like spiral and it, it just, it gets, it gets super messy. You can't expect your, your fellow spoonies to come to your rescue all the time. Like you need to access the resources that are available. And it goes back to like being able to advocate, like if you can write an Instagram post about it, that's great. And that's a great outlet, but that can't be the end game. You know what I mean? Like that can't be all that you do. And this, you know, this is coming from experience on my part too. Like I've done that where I've been like, okay, I can articulate it to an Instagram post. Like now what, like what action steps can I take to like move through it? You know what I mean? Instead of getting stuck, stuck in this like pit of despair. Well, and I've seen too, you know, other people on Instagram who become the sounding board for those individuals and the toll that it takes on their mental health, because, you know, we're, we're all navigating our own health and carrying the emotional burden of people who have put us in those roles as the Instagram counselor or therapist or advocate, you know, that we are the only ones that can carry that burden or educate or inform, um, without considering, you know, what they're going through also. Um, but another thing, you know, thinking about people using the internet for mental health, um, it can be really scary too. And we touched on this in our last episode when we talked about our um, Facebook group for our specific disease, when people rely on those groups for actual medical advice or defer seeking medical attention, hoping to get answers from the internet. And I've seen posts about really serious health issues, um, pictures of wounds, infections, et cetera, ew, um, where people were asking like what they should do. And, you know, I want people to think about like, what would you do if social media didn't exist? Like go to the hospital, call your doctor, like take the appropriate steps to care for yourself because people on the internet are, are not your healthcare system. And while it's good to be able to get input like on those things, social media is not a replacement for actual medical care. Um, and the individuals that act like they're providing like true medical advice, that's really, really scary. 
And if you see that, that behavior should be reported um, because that's, you know, not only scary, but really, really dangerous for people. And then, you know, one other thing that's a little bit of a, a side rant, um, but I want to mention it too, as we talk about sort of the Band-Aid solutions versus, you know, advocating for advocacy and true systems change. I think the use of social media has, has really exacerbated those Band-Aid solutions. And I know of one organization, um, and we're not going to mention, you know, pages or organizations by name in this episode, but it works to connect people with chronic illnesses to employment um, with companies that are quote unquote accepting of hiring people who need accommodations. And while I love the premise, um, and I believe that people should be able to work regardless of what accommodations they need, what this does is tell people with disabilities and chronic illnesses that they need to find special places to work and find employers that are willing willing to hire them. And what we really should be doing from a systematic perspective is working with all companies and HR departments and training them to accommodate their employees with disabilities because it, because it is literally required by law. It is illegal to discriminate against employees with disabilities and chronic illnesses. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen because we all know it happens. But in doing this and taking this opposite approach, we let companies get away with discriminatory practices and we make the employee reroute their entire lives and their career paths to find more understanding companies. And we'll definitely talk more about employment down the road because this is a really important issue to me and I want to share my experience um, with, you know, employment and advocating and, and those things. Um, but that organization is one of the pages that I, I keep following and unfollowing because I want to be on board with the work that they do and sort of be in that community. But I also it makes me so upset that that's what we've resorted to instead of working to fix the system on a bigger scale. Yeah, definitely. And I think like there's another outlet that I'm thinking of specifically, and I think it's problematic for a couple of reasons. So like initially it was just a page for like articles and information and stuff about like living with a chronic illness and like I won't lie like I've submitted a couple of like my blog entries to this outlet because it's very popular like it is a huge community um, and at some point it developed this like social media sort of timeline aspect to it and it became very problematic very quickly to the point where like I reached out to the admin and was like, do you know this is happening? Because literally I scrolled through the first like page of posts and it was all people talking about how they didn't want to live anymore. Like it, it was so triggering for me as somebody who has like experienced those thoughts and there was no mediation there was no moderation of the posts of the comments and i think like what has happened is this platform has expanded more than the capacity for that degree of moderation and and i'm not saying that like there aren't other 
places on the internet where those conversations happen. There absolutely are. But they, like, I'm thinking of one, like, blog website in particular. They're, they have pieces in place. So if you use certain hashtags, if you use certain phrases, A, they don't let you post it. And B, they give you resources. Like, they, um, if you use, I'm not even going to, like, go into what the hashtags are or anything like that. But, you know, they give you a number to call or a website to visit and they say, hey, are you okay? Like, this is, this is scary stuff. Are you good? And there isn't that sort of um, speed bump with this particular outlet. And that, that, that was scary to me because it's literally this community of people just feeding that beast. And again, like, yes, that can be validating but there's nobody there to say, are you okay? Like if it's just people saying, yo, same, like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore either. Then what, what, what is to stop you? You know what I mean? Like that is a big, heavy conversation to have. And I, I, you know, I hate to dive right into it like that, but, but that's a problem. That's a huge, huge problem. So it, it gets to, this point where like, where is the line? Like, where is the line between this being a healthy outlet and this being a, a really dangerous platform for people? Well, and it's become too like, you know, this, this expectation and this ticket to like other opportunities as like a professional quote unquote Spoonie. And do you remember when I went all real housewives at a genetics conference and stormed out of dinner at Buco de Beppo to call you? Because I was talking to somebody who was like a higher up at a genetics organization about, you know, opportunities to speak at a conference and like how you got considered. Um, and if there was like a request for proposals or, you know, what the process was. And she literally said to me, you have to write for that outlet. That's what gets you the opportunity to speak. And I literally like was about to flip a table and I just stormed out and I was like, oh, you know, because here people are going through the proper channels of like, you know, writing, you know, getting a degree in writing and getting a degree in public health and, you know, becoming a, a speaker and building a business. And, oh, you just have to write for this, this blogging site that has literally no criteria or oversight or any type of like required anything. And it just, I was like, okay, like I'm seriously barking up the wrong tree with this, this organization, if that's truly what they feel, um, validates your experience yeah and i'm gonna even jump down in our notes a little bit because there is such an element of gatekeeping in this chronic illness community and i know recently um and i won't speak to whether or not you have experienced this too but there's a part of me that wants to like belong to that and i feel like i have to like present this degree of like being sick enough for my voice to even have a place in that community. And I think that's really dangerous for people with invisible illnesses, particularly those who choose not to publicly disclose what they're going through, but then do want to like have a say in some of those systemic changes 
or um, even just like provide their input on something, it's like you're you're not sick enough, you haven't done enough time in the hospital, you haven't had this test or that test. Um, and it sounds, that sounds really hyperbolic, but it's not, it's not. And I feel like this outlet in particular is very indicative of that sort of close-knit, spoony, tubey, <laughs> zebra, <laughs> whatever, um, community and that and and you have to like earn that label by being sick enough and maybe that's why I'm so salty about it in general because like I couldn't personally identify with that because I don't look like I like my presence on social media is not based on my illness or my experience like with having a chronic illness so I don't think it like it, it would feel really disingenuous to like make it about that um, which, which leads me back to like how problematic those communities are in the first place. I don't know. What do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, ha I have a lot of thought thoughts on that. Um, and I agree. And just one other comment about that specific outlet, um, coming back to, you know, the idea of advocacy and communication, you know, a lot of the articles on that platform say things like, what everyone with a chronic illness wants you to know or what everyone with such and such, you know, feels. And I find these problematic because they're written by one person, right? They don't speak for everyone. And they also imply that people in your life should be able to read your mind. And I think we see this, you know, we see this in a lot of ways, like, you know, people saying like, oh, well, my boyfriend should have known such and such, or he should have known what I wanted for Valentine's Day, or, you know, he should have known why I was upset. And people are not mind readers. So articles like these, you know, they make people in your circles feel, feel bad that they're not being a friend or a, a family member in the right way but it's also not encouraging people to advocate and really communicate what that way is and you may not even know specifically like what you need you know from that person but if it's like i need you to understand why i don't want to have a zoom call or why i don't want to go to this event or i may need help you know getting groceries i may need a ride somewhere you know like but these articles that exacerbate like well, everyone should know how I'm feeling and uh, this is how everybody feels I feel are really problematic because that's not that may not be how everybody feels and it's it's passive aggressive it's not encouraging those healthy communication skills it's encouraging passive aggressive pity I hate to say it um, and in terms of like the whole being in the club thing you know you and I have talked a lot about how I'll go down these rabbit holes sometimes and, and follow a bunch of people on, on social media because I feel like I should. And I feel like, you know, that's maybe our audience for this podcast. And, you know, I don't know, but I feel socially obligated to be connected um, to that group. And I think one thing that's, you know, like you said, um, as I thought about this more in depth, like it's important to acknowledge, you know, we didn't have social media when we were learning to cope with our chronic illness. You know, we were born 
we were hashtag born this way. <laughs> um, and we created our narratives based on real human interaction and, and relationships. And so now that social media is a thing, you know, for you and I to go back and just change our content or our, you know, brand or our identity to follow, you know, the paths of what others have done who have different experiences, you know, it's, we're not going to do that. And another part of that on a much bigger scale, um, which is, you know, a whole other discussion is I have learned and have seen that there is a much different socio-emotional process of people who have an acquired illness or disability versus those who were born with it. And I think this is something else that doesn't get talked about enough. And I'm sure that if I had been diagnosed later in life and, you know, gone from eating and, I mean, I, you know, having this normal quote unquote life and then all of a sudden I was told I would have to be tube fed and, you know, my life was just turned upside down. There is a very different grief cycle that people go through. And so I think what we see on social media is that process and how people are processing it in a very public way. But for me, you know, being this is something that both of us were born with, it's all we know and we haven't had to display that. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't feel the need to show myself getting hooked up or posting pictures on my tubes, you know, just the way I'm not going to do an Insta story of like brushing my teeth um, because that's just our, our perception. And I think that's a really critical component as to why our experience may be different than that, those of, that we see on social media. I think that's such a huge piece of this. And I think that took me a really long time to absorb because I was like, well, I can do it. Why can't everyone? But you're right. Like, this is all we know. You know, this has been our norm basically from infancy to to adulthood. And like, if I was told that I had to change my whole life, like it's a, it's a coping mechanism for sure. Like embracing it as as part of your identity is coming to terms with the the reality that this is your new life. And I can't imagine that. And I do admire the people who are, who are navigating that piece of their journey. But I think what is, is frustrating to me and, and saddening more than anything is that, and, and frankly, like the medical world does not help like sending people home, telling them they can't shower with a central line is not, is not okay. But I think what's frustrating to me is that like, it, it doesn't have to be your whole life. You know, like it, if that is part of your, your process, your coping mechanism, your grief cycle, um, whatever that looks like for you, that is okay. But you are still you. You know what I mean? Like you, regardless of whether you have a diagnosis now, I think I was actually just talking to a friend about this um, in terms of like mental health diagnoses and how like it can be very validating to get answers and to have a label for what you are going through, but it can also be really detrimental because we put so much weight on those labels and on those diagnoses and that becomes um, who we are. And I know I talk about this, I'm kind of going through our notes, but um, I'm going to skip down a little bit again, just because it, it makes sense. But um, I had a therapist in college 
And I was basically denying the, the severity of my illness at that time. And she said, you know, it doesn't have to be all of you, but it is a part of you. And that's such a fine balance to navigate and to establish because like you, you do have to manage your care. You have to adhere to your treatment. You have to do what's going to keep you alive, but there also has to be some quality of life. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I know some people, they don't have the ability to, like, I'm, I'm very, I recognize how fortunate I am to be able to dance in burlesque shows and ride horses and go swimming and travel. Like, I do not take that for granted. And I don't want anyone to think that I do. But that also, it took a lot of work to be able to do those things in some cases, you know? And like, I don't want people to think that like, I don't have any limitations, but I also don't want people to think that like, I am only my limitations, you know? I don't know. I just, I don't want people to lose sight of themselves just because they have a chronic illness. And I think there's not enough conversation about being born with an illness and having an acquired illness. And I feel like we should be learning from each other rather than being so bipartisan on something like that, you know? Yeah, totally. And I want to go back to the gatekeeping conversation for a minute because I think both of us, you know, this is this is really part of why we didn't do this podcast before now. You know, we've spent years talking about how we don't feel like we're in the club. And, you know, but but why should our experience be invalidated because of what people on Instagram say or make us think. Um, And we literally, you know, are made to feel bad and feel guilty for posting those things like having, you know, a job or relationships or, you know, traveling and, you know, not wanting to just post pictures of our medical devices. And, um, but it's, it's important. Um, and I've always, you know, lived my life of, you know, this is a, a part of it and how can we do, do those things regardless of our illness. And I think it's important to be able to show others how to navigate and how to do things, you know, safely. Um, but, and it does contradict some of the medical advice, you know, and I even, I think sometimes in our Facebook group and especially in the genetics community have been made to feel like we're not doing life right (laughs) Um, because we haven't devoted our life to necessarily finding a cure. Um, And I've had researchers like get really sassy with me because they're their thing, their magic pill or whatever, um, you know, that would essentially swap out one medical intervention for another, but may potentially impact our quality of life. I was like, nah, man, like I'm good. Like, this is all I know. Um, This is how I've been navigating my life. And I think even though, you know, we're not necessarily always like by the book people, you know, we've watched best practices change faster than, you know, fall fashion trends. Um, But if what I'm doing has worked for 30 years, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, we can give and share our perspective. And if people who are newly diagnosed want to forge their own way, that's totally fine. Um, But it doesn't mean that the way we've been doing things 
and the way that we're navigating the world is wrong. And, you know, with my role in the genetics community as somebody with a, a genetic condition who is an adult with a significantly positive quality of life, um, my voice is often silenced by, you know, and, and I don't want this to come across as like that what parents are doing for their children is wrong or negative, but you know, the, it's made up of parents of children who are seeking to, to find a cure. And I try to carry the, the message of you can live with an illness and still live. Um, and there doesn't seem to be room for that message at the tables that I have been at. And that's, that can be frustrating. And I know we have one mutual friend who um, has posted recently about how the way that we are managing our care is not um, seen as like a long-term solution. But even, even if that is the case, I feel like we are not being presented with the reality of the alternative solutions, quote unquote. And, and another one of our friends, um, and I, I just posted about this in our group, like you're not, you're really not solving the problem. You're just switching out one set of hardships for another, you know? And so I think like presenting families with this like, you know, this is, this is the end goal. Like, this is the only way to like fix it. Um, I, I feel like, like you said, like it takes away from that, like, yes, but what is their quality of life right now? Like if, if we are managing our illness and the side effects are minimal and we are able to maintain some degree of quality of life, why, why risk it? You know what I mean? Like, I like think, speaking specifically about transplants, like I'll just say it, I, that's not a guaranteed solution at all. And the risks far outweigh the risks of managing my illness, how it's managed right now. And I like, I'm going to grad school. I'm working full time. I'm living independently. I have a horse. I have a cat. Like I, (laughs) I am not willing to sacrifice those things to be a science experiment. I'm not like my life is fine you know, I have learned to manage this disease. So I think just like, I don't think healthcare professionals are being entirely transparent about the, the pros and cons of what our solutions are. And at the same time, in trying to find a cure or even just like raising awareness, you are instilling the message in your child that something is wrong with them and that they need to be fixed and that they need to be cured. And that is the only way that they will live a good life. And that makes me so angry. Like, it, and it goes back to like, it, it can be okay. Like, is it, is it hard to come to terms with? Yeah, sure. I still have days where I'm like, wow, this sucks. I don't want to get hooked up tonight. I don't want to do X, Y, and Z. But like, in the grand scheme of things, like, I don't know. It, it feels like, <laughs> this is very dramatic, um, but it, it does, it kind of feels like a, a personal attack on the way that we are living our life um, by insisting that we'd be better off doing it this way, you know? I don't know. I don't know if yeah. I'm making sense at this point. I'm very like, no, that makes a hard thing to talk yeah. about. 
well, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And we're, we're kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I want to share one story of, um, an experience I had at a genetics conference. And I, I don't remember if I've talked about this before, but, um, I was in the exhibit hall. And if you've ever been to a genetics conference, there's a lot of big pharma and a lot of big dollars, um, being spent on exhibits. And it literally looks like the capital, like from the hunger games, it's just insane. So I was just browsing the exhibits. Um, and I approached a booth for like, literally like a free pen or something. And, you know, the person started engaging with me and they said, oh, are you a genetic counselor? And I said, no, I'm an adult living with a rare genetic disorder. And they just looked at me and their eyes got really big because ultimately I am what they're trying to prevent. And they didn't know how to continue the conversation. And that was my role at the at any genetics conference because the 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 field is based on eliminating genetic conditions and that's a that's a that's a whole other cringy dark um rabbit hole but you know i i feel the same way i so i have kind of a an interesting experience i was at a conference and there was a booth for an experimental drug that i had actually gone through almost the whole process to try. And um, I was like, oh, interesting. So one of the, basically it like is supposed to grow the cells that we are missing in a sense. Um, but there's also the potential for these cells to uh, become cancerous. <laughs> so I was like, that is another risk that I am not entirely willing to take. Um, but I wanted to talk to the representative about the potential of this drug and like what they were planning on doing with it and who it was for and da da da. Literally, they were like, oh, are you a clinician? And I was like, no, I'm a consumer. And they were like, we literally can't talk to you. Like we, we can't talk to patients. So if that tells you anything about like the, the process of like streamlining these drugs, like we, we won't, we won't get into like the depths of how messed up the pharmaceutical companies are, but like, I was flabbergasted. I was like, I am literally the person who is going to be injecting your product into my body yep. and you can't talk to me about it. Like, excuse you. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's so messed up. We could do a whole bunch of episodes about conferences. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing I was going to say about gatekeeping is I feel a little like offended sometimes I think, and I'm, I'm going to get real, real for a second. I am the oldest living person with our condition. I have an incredible life. I am living independently. I am financially independent. I am married. I am working on a national level, improving systems for families of kids with special healthcare needs. I am sharing my story like globally and nobody wants to talk to us. There are providers doing research on our disease. There are organizations advocating for research for our disease and nobody is looking at what we're doing, how we're doing it, 
and what we might find helpful. Nobody has reached out. I mean, if you Google us, Maisie, like our names are out there. Like we're not hiding. And it just goes to show that providers who are doing research do not value lived experience at all. And I have seen that across the board in lots of types of research. But the fact that as literal subject matter experts who have lived and thrived with this disease because our end game is not finding a cure, nobody cares about our perspective. And maybe that's not the case, but having done this personally and professionally for over a decade, um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel. And, you know, I want to start talking about it because, you know, if, if there are things to learn, I don't understand why we're not talking to the people who are living with the condition. Well, you said it right there. We are not looking for a cure. Like, think about what the goal of pharmaceuticals is. It's to make money. If there's a dozen of us on this planet with this disease, A, we are not profitable, and B, if we are living a quality life without a cure or without a product that is going to make our lives better, why would they? Why would they? You know, this episode got way more real than <laughs> I thought we were going to get to, but but honestly, like, so much of the the rare disease community is based on whether or not they can make a profit off of us and you know the drugs that are being tested and tried and like they have to think about like the cost benefit analysis and ultimately like we are not we are not what they're looking for because we're thriving like they're not going to they're not going to put money and resources into people who are living a quality life without their product so i almost feel like that raising awareness, finding a cure mindset, those are the people that they're going to target because they don't think that they can like, like that research company that was like, your life is garbage without us. Correct. <laughs> like, we, it's, not, it's not funny, but it's kind of, you have to laugh because they were literally like, we are changing lives of people with this disease. And we had never heard of them. So like, are well, we... They- we also found out that they were scammers and were stealing other people's research. So they, I ended up being the, the one to not go down, the one who was right to not buy into that. Um, but, but exactly. Um, and I actually, at another genetics event, heard uh, a story of a dad who presented, um, and it was the exact same thing. You know, he, he knew that there was a way to um, treat his son to live a longer life. Um, and it wasn't a cure, but it was, it was the ability for a very rare disease to be managed so that this kiddo could live into adulthood. And he fundraised and fundraised and fundraised and found one doctor who was willing to take this on. And because of that, there are maybe a handful or so of kids who are able to have full lives. And that story like really resonated with me because it wasn't that like cure all, you know, fix things, but it was one family member being like, I know this is possible for my kid to have a longer life. Um, and then they show the kid like proposing to his fiance, like all, and I was, I mean, I'm a tough nut to crack. And like, I was weeping, but the whole point was that we're not, we're not profitable. Um, so that's, that's the end game. Yeah. So I'm going to try, I'm going to try to bring it back to our notes 
if you can hear dogs barking in the background, that's just my life now. So um, I'm going to try to bring it back to our notes, though, because it kind of gets back to that like profitability. Um, and we talked a little bit about the concept of like inspiration porn. And um, like we were talking about all the stuff that we post on social media and like all the things that we're doing and stuff. And like if people don't know, it's so weird because if people don't know that we're quote unquote sick, um, those things are just things that we do. But like I posted um, a picture of me performing in a burlesque show the Friday after I got a new central line placed on a Tuesday and like it's day surgery, whatever. Like to me, that wasn't a big deal, but everybody was like, oh, you're so strong. You're so brave. And like, that was kind of, that was kind of badass by like my standards. So like I did post about that, but like me going to work every day, that's not brave. Me like setting up my tubing every night to get hooked up. That's not brave. Like what's the alternative? Like, <laughs> you know? So I think it's just like, I think that that concept of inspiration porn and there's who's the um the woman who did the TED talk Stella something Stella Young I believe yeah and so it's like if you take the disability or the chronic illness or the rare disease part out of the news headline is it still a news headline like that that is just what is mind-boggling to me so like, I don't know one, ex one example I think of recently, there was an article about a man, I don't know if he was famous or I don't know. He asked his brother, who was somebody who had Down syndrome, to be his best man in his wedding. And that was a news article. It's his brother. The, you know, the ideas of people asking somebody with a disability to be their prom date. You know, the, the, the fact that we, we find inclusion as something, like, yes, it's something to celebrate, but we celebrate the person who is playing the martyr for including the person with a disability. Um, and, you know, I think that's what, you know, we try to show, like, through social media is, like, we are doing these things because we have a life. Um, and yeah, or there's some things that are harder and, you know, I think it's incredible that Owen and I have moved to different cities and established a life and navigated in incredible challenges. Like, is that inspirational? Maybe, but is the fact that like we found each other and like got married and are doing normal adult things like inspirational like going to the grocery store I you know that's where it gets a little bit icky um and one thing that really resonates with me that I like I remember sending to you as just like super icky um remember that family that threw their daughter who had down syndrome um a wedding themed birthday party um and the whole point of the article was that the family didn't know you know they didn't feel like she would ever achieve that like quote unquote normal milestone so they let her like play wedding as like a teenager um that is so there are so many layers to that like being icky um but i think you know getting back to like the spoonie to be zebra vibe is that a lot of times what you see on social media is, is, 
is exacerbating that inspiration porn idea and, you know, showing, showing people at their, their worst of like, you know, you're so brave for, for sharing this or doing this, um, without realizing like, yeah, this is my every day. Like, I'm not being brave. I'm not here to be your inspiration. Like I'm sharing this because it's my life and it's literally what I need to do to get through the day. And I think the inspiration porn angle is, um, it's a way of people expressing their discomfort and they're like, you know, I'm celebrating you because I don't know how else to deal. And I think that's also a coping mechanism. Um, it's a lot. Yeah. I think that, I think that discomfort is, um, is definitely a part of it. Like, oh, you're so brave. You're so strong. Well, if I wasn't, I would die. And like, I know that that makes you uncomfortable, but like, that's the reality. And I think it does kind of go back to like being able to communicate your needs. Like I remember, um, the last relationship I was in, I, I posted a huge long blog about relationships and like being in a relationship with a chronic illness. And, uh, he, he shared it and everybody, everybody commented, you're so nice to be with her and support her. <laughs> anyway, I won't, I won't go on that tangent, but basically like, it's, it's just, yeah, it presents that like, feel bad for me mindset. I don't know. I feel like I'm just going in circles at this point, but like communicate about what you need and how you're feeling. And like, I don't know. It's, it's a lot. Well, I think this, I mean, I think this has been a really rich conversation and there's, there's obviously so much more to talk about, but I'm really excited that we opened the dialogue. Um, and we are, you know, really open to hearing other people's thoughts and perspectives. Um, and we know that, you know, this is definitely a heavy topic um, and we may not be sharing opinions that are the most popular, um, but we want to hear from our listeners. So feel free to like drop us a DM or comment on this post with how social media has impacted you, um, whether you feel that you are connected to these communities, whether they're you know, positive or negative or, you know, a little bit of both. We really want to hear from you. Um, so just thanks for being open to hearing and listening and sharing um, everything that we have to say. Yeah, I second that. And I think this has opened the door to a lot of bigger conversations that we can talk about more in depth. Um, so along with that, if there's anything else that um, you want us to touch on, um, I, I would love to dig deeper into the genetics conversation, especially just like where I'm at in my life. Um, and yeah, seeing other kids with what we have sort of grow up and, um, and those conversations. So yeah, thank you for, for giving us the space to, to talk about this stuff. I know it's a lot, but I think it's important. So um, all of that being said, thank you for listening. Follow us on Instagram. Mallory is at Curb Cuts and Cocktails. I am the underscore Mazinator. And we have our at with Maze and Mal account as well. Um, subscribe to our Patreon. We are going to upload the uh, videos of these recordings. So <laughs> you can see our beautiful faces. I definitely haven't been crying all day. So it's fantastic. 
Um, <laughs> that should be incentive enough. And listen wherever you get your podcasts. Anything else, Mel? That's it. Thanks so much, everybody. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.